We are continuing our sermon series on uh, the power of dad today. It's a four-week series. This is week three. And we're talking about the power that fathers have. And um, we're learning from our Heavenly Father how to be better dads and just better, better people, better human beings. And um, as part of this series, we've been asking people to share their stories with us. In just a moment, you're going to hear um, one of those stories. But before we get there, I just wanted to say uh, it's official today. The story, as of this moment, is live streaming on um, Facebook Live. So we are, uh, that's pretty awesome. We're for the first time welcoming um, people online. So thank you all. It's weird to talk to a camera, but hi, thank you for coming and for being here with us and for welcoming the story into your, into your homes, onto your phones, however it is you're connecting. We received several stories from people about their dads and their experiences with dads and fatherhood. And a few of those really stood out. And so um, got a couple of surprises for you this week and next Sunday. So don't miss next Sunday either. If you're anywhere near Houston, it's going to it's going to be worth your while to get here and, and check it out. Um, if you're out of town, of course, you can check out our live stream on Facebook. Did I mention that? And um, there were a few stories that really stood out. I wanted you to hear a couple of them. Today, um, we asked Diana Davis to come and share her story with us. So if you would just please, please prepare your hearts and minds to receive Diana's story and join me in welcoming her to the stage now. This is Diana Davis. Good morning. It is a privilege to share my story with you today in honor of Jesus. She is far more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. My father left us when I was 11 months old. My mother left for a better life when I was six years old. Because my father abandoned his family, we suffered. He left me hungry. He provided no food, no clothing, no shelter. I remember eating Crisco out of a can. No security, no protection. The abandonment of my father left me terribly abused before the age of six. Abandoned, rejected, I had no idea what a man was for or what a man provided within a family. I did not trust men. I did not know God. I never dated like other young adults. I poured my heart into my work, a college degree, a professional career. That success defined my life. I worked tirelessly trying to show others that I was good enough. I protected myself from pain. I met and married my husband at age 38. He was soft, gentle, kind, and understanding. I loved him instantly. He had no idea what he would 
he would go through with me because of my past. But he has always remained steadfast. He is my rock. When David proposed, my first response was, are you sure? He had to convince me that I was worthy of his love and a marriage. If I was not good enough for my own father, then how could I possibly be good enough for David? Before we married, I asked him if there was anything he wanted to know about my past. I wanted to give him one last chance to back out of the marriage. David's answer to me was, and I quote, I do not care about the past. All I care about is from this day forward. When I met my father-in-law, he scared me. I had never seen anything like him. So strong. I watched this man carefully. I watched him lead his family. He took ownership of every one of us. The day I married his son, he said, Welcome to the Davis family. I cried. I needed those words from him so badly. He was the first man to show me what a real man does for his family. As a husband, he adored his wife. She was his queen. They were married 50 years before he died. As a father, he was always dad to his children, no matter our age. Adored as a grandpa. When our dad spoke, we listened. When our dad told us what to do, we did it not out of control or fear, but out of love, honor, and respect. He always put us first. I loved my husband's dad so much. I only had six years with him before he died, but God used him to show me what an important role a man plays within a family. Joe Davis taught me more about a man in six years than anyone had in my entire life. In order to protect myself from pain, I never wanted to have children. I never wanted to love that deeply. When I married David, he brought with him 
our son. He was eight years old when we married. <laughs> our son, John Davis, has taught me more about love than anyone. Unconditional love. The love that never ends. The love that always returns. The love that loves me at my worst. A son, God's most precious gift to me. Not only did God give me a father-in-law to teach me what a father does, he gave me a husband and a son. I watched my father-in-law carefully and took note. Now I have the gift of watching my husband be a father. God restores. God was always there. I didn't know it. He cares for his children. I was baptized at the age of 43. David stood with me with tears of joy. The greatest gift of my life is knowing that my heavenly father adores me. That I do have a father. That I am the daughter of a king. That I am more precious than rubies in my father's eyes. Thank you. This is the power of dad. This is what we've been talking about for um, two weeks already. And we're going to continue this conversation today because I believe God loves us. God wants us to know that we are his, that we are his children. He wants us to see ourselves the way that he sees us. Thank God for men like Joe Davis. Thank God for men like David Davis who's uh, here today as well. Thank God for them. I think we would all agree that we need more men to rise up and follow in these men's footsteps. More men to rise up and be the fathers that God created them to be. Fathers who reflect the kind of love that God our Father has for all of us. So, um, it's not easy being a good dad. It's not easy being Joe Davis. I mean, we tell his story like that just came naturally to him. The things that a good father does for those around him is not natural. It's not normal. It takes something out of you. It's hard because you wake up every day and you say, I'm last. Everybody else and their needs, their concerns, their happiness comes before mine. Doing that every day is hard. It takes something out of you, swallowing your pride and being a great dad. It's difficult. One thing that makes it difficult is that a lot of dads just don't know where the end zone is, don't know what the goal is. What's it look like? For you to be a great dad, some of you all aren't wired the same way or didn't have great dads like Joe. How do you recreate, you know, the, the, the past in a way that makes for a better future? 
And if the goalposts are always moving, you don't really know where you're headed. Sometimes people think being a good dad kind of just means uh, raising kids that are, are out of the house by the time they're 20. And if, uh, if they're still there after 20, then, then you've failed somehow. A lot of parents of uh, younger generations today are like, oh, what have we done wrong? Our kids are still at home, da, da, da. You know, like that is the measure. It's a false metric for good parenting. But that's kind of uh, where we're at in society. We don't know what the metric is. Some people think that being a good dad means raising kids that are working in full-time jobs by the age of 25. And if they're not pursuing great careers by the time they're 25, then we've done something wrong as fathers. And, man, I've talked to dads and moms that beat themselves up for raising kids that, that aren't, you know, at these goalposts by the time they think they should be. Dads raising daughters think that being good dads mean raising virtuous daughters, pure daughters. This is what society and sometimes the church teaches us. Comedian Chris Rock said, I've got one job as a father is to make sure my daughter is not a stripper, that she never becomes a stripper. If I can do that, then I've achieved everything I should as a father. I'm not so sure that's a good metric for good fatherhood. Some dads of sons think being a good dad means raising masculine sons. And a lot of dads really grieve when their sons aren't sports stars or when their sons aren't real masculine, or when, when their sons like things that maybe aren't typical, traditional masculinity, whatever. And a lot of dads think they've done something wrong when that's the case. This was such a given that, that fathers want their sons to be masculine, that masculine fathers raise masculine sons, that, that when they finally started studying fathers a generation ago, they expected to find the direct link between masculine fathers and masculine sons. But most recently, they've done studies where they found that there is no direct correlation between masculine daughters and masculine sons. In fact, um, as you see on the screen behind me, there is no consistent connection between a father's masculinity and his son's masculinity. This posed a challenge to conventional wisdom. If fathers weren't helping to make boys into men, then what role did they have? This scientist quotes, the problem was that nobody asked why boys might want to be like their fathers. When researchers decided to look for that, they discovered that the relationship between father and son was crucially important. When a father had a warm relationship with his son, the son would grow up to be more like his father than sons who were not close to their fathers. A father's own masculinity was irrelevant. His warmth and closeness to his son was the key factor. The question I'd like to ask today is what makes a good dad? And I want to look at this question and examine it through the lens of the story Jesus tells of a father and his two sons. Because I think Jesus is trying to teach us primarily something about the fatherhood of God, but I think he's also trying to teach us by virtue of that lesson how to be great dads. And I think we can find in this simple story, it's a really short story, we can find all we need to know about what it means to be good dads, what it means to be good so uh, this story is in um, Luke 15. We kind of looked at the first half of the story already. The, the son demands his father's uh, inheritance. He demands what should be his after his father's dead. So one-third of the father's um, estate goes to the younger of the two sons. But it's supposed to happen after the father's dead. So the, the son's basically saying, Dad, you're dead to me. I don't care about you. I wish you were dead. Just give me what's mine, and I'll be on my way. A really egregious request, an incredibly 
disrespectful um, and narcissistic request because it wasn't like the father's money was tied up in, you know, some bank account. It was all in land, the family's land. So the father would have to go and sell, break up the family's land and sell one-third of his heritage to fulfill his son's request. What a spoiled son this must have been. This boy, and he was a man, but I'll call him a boy because he acts like a boy. This boy had no idea how good he had it with his dad. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things about being a father, about being a parent, is that you do so much for your kids. (laughs) Morning to night, when you're raising them, you got small kids at home, kids have no idea the sacrifices you've made for them. I did a wedding yesterday and the bride and groom were there and they looked amazing and, and, and they looked happy and they stood there fully grown and I thought these two have no idea how many sacrifices their parents made from them from before they were born. Late night, you know, mad dashes to the hospital because, you know, my belly hurts or, you know, some emergency or mad dashes to CVS because I need pickles or whatever it is, or, you know, the sacrifices, big and small, that parents make. Sometimes parenting, even fathering, feel like the art of doing all the heavy lifting and getting none of the credit. And that can be a real challenge for parents sometimes when their kids act up and their kids act ungrateful. You have no idea what I've done for you. A small example, the other day I was making the kids sack lunches. I've got two kids, a daughter who's nine and a son seven. I was making their sack lunches for summer camp. And I try to make the best sack lunch I can make. It's one of my specialties as a father. Everything's brown in my sack lunches. Everything's tasty and nothing is good for them. But um, I'm trying to make their lives a little easier. You know, summer camp inside the loop can be a real, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard road to hoe. So... Um, <laughs> I tried to make it easier for them, so, so I, I was making their sack lunches. I was making my son's sack lunch. He's seven, and, and, I, and I decided I was going to uh, throw a banana in his lunch uh, that day because, A, he loves bananas, and, B, I'm sick of being judged by the nutrition Gestapo that is the other mothers in our group. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll throw in something besides carbs and calories. Uh, and so I got ready to put the banana in the sack lunch. But I, I remembered my son has an issue with bananas. He can't open them. I don't know why, but he can hit home runs, but put a banana in his hand, it's like a, a Rubik's Cube. You know, it's like he just... And so I decided I'm going to cut a slit near the, near the stem of this banana so that his day at camp is a little bit easier. And I felt so good about this, you know, gesture. I felt so positive for just a moment about what a great conscientious father I'm being. But then this moment, this darkness just washed over me. And all the joy went away and this sadness set in when I realized he's never going to know it was me. He's never going to know. I cut the slit at the stem of the banana. He's probably just going to think some bananas come that way. And worst case scenario, he gets the sense of entitlement that every banana should be that way. And there should be no one to thank for it when bananas come that way. And so I started to feel this, this prideful rage inside of me. And I just took the banana out of his bag and I ate it myself. <laughs> And I grabbed another banana, the greenest one on the bunch, and I just put it in there without no slit, no easy open slit on that one. I, 
I thought to myself, I really thought to myself, that'll teach him. That'll show him. That'll show him. He's seven. He's oblivious. But, you know, that'll teach him. Which all goes to show that I've got a long way to go as a father. I've got a long way to go as a dad. And I, I, especially when I haven't had my coffee, can I get a hallelujah? And I've, I've not had my coffee and I'm just, it's, it's a dark world sometimes. And so I've got a long way to go. Especially in light of the bar that Jesus sets for fatherhood with this story he tells about this father and his two sons. Especially the one son who insults him, humiliates him, makes him look like a fool in front of a whole lot of people. So Jesus, when he tells these stories, he wants you to envision them. Don't just read the pages. Don't just read the words. Like Envision the stories as they happen. Imagine the characters dealing with uh, what happens between the lines. This son humiliates his father in front of the whole village, the whole town. People were talking about how stupid it was of his father to share or to sell off his family's inheritance, his family's heritage. This was their identity. It was everything. You didn't sell your family land. It wasn't a real estate deal. Like, you didn't do that. If anything, you handed it down from one generation to the next. The older son would take two-thirds and live on that. The younger son would take one-third and live on that. And then they would hand that down to their sons. That's how it was supposed to work. Not like this. So he humiliated his father. What's the natural reaction when somebody humiliates you? What's the natural reaction when your child humiliates you? In front of people, publicly, makes you look like a fool, makes you look like a bad parent. Your natural reaction is to be defensive. At best, you're going to make some lame excuse for it. He's, he needs a nap. But, <laughs> but that's best case scenario. Otherwise, you'll be defensive. You might ignore them. You might look for ways to punish them. You might want to cut them off for a while, a timeout or something. You might, you might want to, if they're grown children who embarrass you or make you look bad, you might want to unfollow them. Like if their politics don't line up with yours and they're humiliating you in some way, unfollow them on Facebook. If it's really serious, then you just do that click down, that egregious click down from unfollow to unfriend, which is the worst thing a parent can do to a child, apparently. In the world that we live in today, it happens all the time. You unfriend them on Facebook. This dad in Luke 15 does none of those things. He doesn't get vindictive. He doesn't need to win the argument. He doesn't need to be proven right or to have his son grovel. He gives a master class in fatherhood. So I want to dig into this story and learn a little bit more as we read between the lines about fatherhood today. Uh, you can read along with me on the screens or uh, in your Bibles or on your study guides that you were given um, today. Luke 15 verse 11 is where we will begin. All right, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. All right. What kind of dad does Jesus present to us in Luke 15? What kind of father is this? The first thing that jumps out at you if you really read the story is that this father's patient. He is patient and persistent with his son, with his spoiled, good-for-nothing son. He is patient and persistent. Did you see how when the, the son said, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. Dad, you're dead to me. I don't care about you. I wish you were dead. Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. The father could have retaliated. The father could have cut him off and said, what inheritance? Bye. And he did none of those things. He said, okay, son. Okay, just give me a few days. If that's what you need, I'll give you your share. And the son says, and I'm leaving on top of that. I'm leaving. I never want to see you again. And what does the father do? Okay. Okay, son, if that's what you want, you know I'm here for you. If that's what you want, just go. Now why? Why would this prideful, upstanding citizen of a dad, this man who was the man in that area, he was the wealthy landowner, the patriarch in that community. Why would he let this son step all over him? Here's why. Because even when things are at their worst, even when things are bad, the best dads always leave the light on and the door open. The best dad always wants to make sure that the lines of communication remain open. He wants to make sure that his son knows that when the the worst of it has passed, that he's welcome to come back home. The best dads never want to sever ties with their kids. That takes patience. That takes persistence, sometimes beyond ourselves. That's what this father does for his son. The second thing I notice about this father is that he's humble. He's humble and eager. The humility of this father It doesn't really occur to you until you really sit with this story for a second. How many times did he have to swallow his pride? A grown man like this, the man of the house, who's supposed to run and manage his family and his household, it all falls apart under his leadership. And everybody in town starts to talk. That's what people do. He can't even manage his own house. He can't even keep his own kids in line. What kind of man is this? And surely he heard stories about what his son was up to, hanging out at bars, sleeping at brothels, wasting his family's money, adding insult to injury for this already heartbroken father. People talked and they gossiped about how stupid this man was to sell off his family's heritage for the sake of this lost son. So this tells us this dad, this dad, he had every reason to turn on his son. He had every reason to resent his son. He had every reason to to just write his son off and say, if I'm dead to him, then he's dead to me too, period. And I'll not talk to him again until he comes and begs me for forgiveness. But he was humble and eager to see his son again. This is the wisdom of a good dad. The good father, he knows that blowing up in the face of these 
down, these down moments, that, that lashing out, winning the argument at all costs, it's not worth it. And on the other hand, detaching yourself, distancing yourself, going out to the shed and having a six-pack while your family is left alone in the house, that's not worth it either. So you're patient, persistent, you're humble, you're eager, you remain steadfast as a father. So that when your son or your daughter hits rock bottom, they know where they can go. This son in this story, he finally hits rock bottom. Doesn't take long, I suppose. He hits rock bottom and he decides to go home. And he rehearses his speech because he's nervous about seeing his dad again, as any of us would be under the circumstances. He's wasted everything. And he says to himself as he's walking home, the speech he wants to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants. He rehearses it all the way home. And Jesus inserts a little line at this point in the story. If you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. You got to pay attention when you read these stories. Every word counts. Jesus says, while he was still... A long way off. While the sun was still a long way off. The implication here being that this dad, he never stopped looking for his son to come home. When, when, when Jesus tells these stories, you visualize them in your head. Picture this father every single day going outside his house, looking desperately into the distant horizon for some sign of his son's return. And Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and his father knew him. From miles away in the distant horizon, his father knew him and saw him because a good father knows his kids even from miles away. Even when they're far away, a good father knows his kids. I know how he walks. I know how he is. I know how he looks. I know what he needs. While he was still far away, he looked and saw his son. And here the father has a decision to make, right? Here the father has a choice to make. Do I keep my distance? Do I stand here? And dig in my heels and wait for him to come to me? Do I wait for him to get on his knees in front of me and beg so that everybody around me can see and tell everyone else in the village who's been talking bad about me that I'm back in control, that I'm the man, that I won? The father does none of those things. Instead, he runs. Even though his son owes him everything, even though his son humiliated him publicly to the point of people calling him weak and foolish, the father runs to his son. This is what uh, Tim Keller says about this in his book, The Prodigal God. As a general rule, distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Children might run. Women might run. Young men might run. But not the paterfamilias, the dignified pillar of the community, the owner of the great estate. He would not pick up his robes and bare his legs like some boy. But this father does. He runs to his son and showing his emotions openly, falls upon him and kisses him. The best dads couldn't care less about winning the argument. 
The best dads couldn't care less about what anyone is saying about them or their reputation or how they look in front of other people or coming out on top. This man only cares about getting to his son as soon as possible to welcome him home. I've always pictured this scene, you know, like I wondered how the son felt because the son obviously has some doubts about how he's going to be welcomed and received when he gets home, as he should because he acted like an idiot. And he's coming home to this father who he stole from, basically. How's he going to be received? What do you think was going through his mind when his father was running full tilt at his direction? What do you think was going through? What is about to happen? (laughs) You know, it's been a while since I've been in a fist fight. My father's coming at me full bore. But it's not to attack him, but to embrace him. The father runs to his son. Why? Did he not care about his reputation, about his pride? Because this father is a grown man. His father's a grown man, not an immature boy who needs to win the fight. I cannot tell you guys how many times I've seen father-child relationships destroyed by insecurity and immaturity on the part of the father who's not a man but a boy who needs to win the fight. When he should be the man in the room, should be the adult in the room, he is immature, he's insecure, he's not really grown into adulthood, but he has the power of a father without the mentality of a father. Fathers are called to act like this father, this man, who runs to his son and kisses him, welcomes him home without groveling, apologizing, or begging for forgiveness. And finally, the son begins to speak after he's been embraced by his father. Maybe as his father is throwing himself on him and holding him and crying, the the son starts the speech he's rehearsed. He starts the speech. He says, Father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him short. He interrupts the speech he's rehearsed for hours on the way home. And he says, Bring out the best robe. The best robe was the father's robe. It was his own robe that he put on his son. He said, put a ring on his finger. That was the family signet ring. It meant the son was family again. He said, let's kill the fattened calf and throw a party because my son is home. And with this story, Jesus shows us what makes a good dad, what really makes a good dad. And I think you can take everything this story says about fatherhood, everything we've talked about already, and condense it down to one simple idea. It all comes down to this one idea, and that is this. Dads, you are a mirror. Fathers, you are a mirror to your children. Good dads, the best dads know that their kids see themselves the way their dads see them. You grew up seeing yourself the way your dad saw you. For some of you, that's really good news because your dad saw you like his treasure. So you grew up believing you were a treasure. You were worthy. You were capable. You were able to overcome life's hardships. You were, you were smart. You were strong. But to some of you, that's not the case. For some of you, it's awful news because your dads weren't there at all, and so you didn't have a reflection. You grew up feeling like nothing. You grew up feeling unworthy. Some of you who were abandoned grew up wondering what's wrong with you 
because your dad left you. That was the reflection he left with you. And, and every year in America, people spend billions of dollars in therapy trying to overcome the reflection they saw in the image of their father. Looking at them. Some of you, church, serves that purpose. Some of you without good fathers are relearning. You're unlearning some of the stuff that you learned in the past. And you're relearning how to see yourself in the mirror of God, the, the way God sees you. And some of you are, have been adopted by God and you've accepted that. And you call him father. And he calls you daughter. He calls you son. This dad of this younger son could have called his son a loser a sinner, a debtor, a slave. But he said, no, you're my son. You're my son and you're worthy. You're deserving of love. Men in the room, I just want you to know this as a wrap-up, men. If you're a dad or if you're going to be a dad, or regardless of what kind of dad you are, if you've got grown kids or little kids or in utero kids or if you've got stepkids, if you're a dad post-divorce, if you've got kids in law, as Diana talked about with Mr. Davis, know this, guys, no matter where you are on this spectrum, if you don't have kids of your own, but you've got people around you who were fatherless, and you know God's calling you to adopt them in some way and let them know they're loved, you need to know this, that a dad's burden is a heavy one because your responsibility reaches far beyond your own home, and your impact will outlive you. Because your kids, the people that you impact as a father or a father figure or a stepfather or a foster father, your impact will live beyond you. Because those people you impact, for better or for worse, will grow up to impact the world around them, most likely in the same way. And so if you, if you raise people up around you, raise kids up around you that, that see themselves as guilty, that see themselves as incapable, that see themselves as a, 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 a you know, a disappointment or shame, if you hold grudges against them, then that's how they will see themselves. And that's your burden to bear. That's on you. But if you see your kids the way God sees you, if you see your kids like you're proud of them, if you look at them like you love them unconditionally, then that legacy will outlive you and your kids will grow up to see others in the same way. And what a powerful thing that is, what a powerful legacy you can leave, dad and mom. All of us are called to this particular calling to love our children the way that God loved us, especially when they've hurt you when they've taken you for granted, when they're still far away from you, if you can bring yourself to run to them and embrace them and forgive them as sons and daughters, that's how they will learn to see themselves as worthy of forgiveness. To me, the best part of this story in Luke 15 is the part that we never get to read. It's the untold story of the next chapter of what happens when this young, spoiled brat grows up to become the man his father raised him to be. Can you imagine this young man growing up to be, to be a man who is like his father, who loves like his father, who has an impact on the community like his father, who forgives freely, who doesn't need to be prideful and win the argument, who doesn't attack or detach, who stands steady and ready to love. That's the best part of this story, and it never would have happened if the dad had been stubborn and proud or distant. 
It happened because this dad and any good father will do anything, no matter the circumstances, to remind his kids who they really are. That's the best gift you can give to a child. It's the best thing my father ever did for me. And if you really think about it, that's the whole story of the gospel. Jesus on the cross is your father reminding you who you really are and what you're really worth. I pray that you'll receive it today. If this kind of love is, is just seems beyond you and you can't imagine forgiving the person that's hurt you or forgiving your child, reconciling with your child and loving people in this way, it's because you probably haven't fully received the love of God, your father, yet. You're not sure you're worth it. Receive that love so you can give it, so you can extend it to your kids and to those around you. It is the greatest gift you can offer. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your love, for stories that remind us of the ways that you love us and how you want us to see ourselves the way you see us. God, we thank you that in spite of anything we've ever done to the contrary, in your eyes, we are not a disappointment. We are not uh, an object of shame. You look at us with pride and with joy. You look at us and see what we can still become. You look at us and see our future and our legacy, a legacy of hope and love. Help us to live up to that, Lord, by trusting you as our Father and by loving others in the same way, by loving our children in the same way. Bless the dads in this room, God, right now, and, and help them to own their responsibility and their legacy that extends beyond their home and that extends even beyond their, their time on this earth. We do love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.